Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the New Testament, from Paul or Peter's first letter, chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. And again, I invite you to turn in your Bibles and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired Word. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through Him you believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Herein ends the reading of God's Word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him and to Him alone. Amen. Our study on the doctrine of the church has highlighted so far that the Lord is in the process of building His church, a spiritual house made up of individual believers who are called to be a holy priesthood who proclaim the excellencies of Christ. In other words, we are to be a people who are set apart for service unto God, and a large part of our service is to announce the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. As we have discovered the last couple of weeks, this calling is not something that we must accomplish by our own cleverness or on our own power. But it is a Holy Spirit-empowered ministry as evidenced by the events of Pentecost. God graciously includes us in this spiritual construction project by granting us the privilege of seeing firsthand the power of the gospel in the lives of those with whom we share the word of Christ. Our effectiveness in this ministry is also due to the Holy Spirit. As we obediently carry out our duties according to the Great Commission, it is the Spirit that inspires our witness to Christ, that opens deaf ears to hear the gospel, that raises those who are dead in their sins, that creates an inner wellspring of living water that refreshes new believers in the grace and the love of God. But the Spirit also increases our effectiveness by His ongoing work of personal sanctification of every disciple 
who surrenders themselves to Christ. You see, Christ not only saves us from the penalty of our sins, but He also saves us from the bondage of our sin. That is, He does not leave us in our sin, but by His Spirit He engages in a work that delivers us day by day from the power of sin, which continues to cling to these mortal bodies of ours. And it is this personal sanctification process, this process of being made holy, that we want to look at more closely today. The Old Testament provided the children of Abraham with plenty of examples about the notion of holiness. There were certain things that were set aside for the singular intention of being used for a divine purpose. One entire tribe, the Levites, were set aside for service unto God. Within the temple, there were objects that had to be consecrated for a singular purpose in the worship of God. Their firstborn sons were understood as belonging to God, needed to be redeemed because God had spared them when they were in Egypt. The first fruits of their harvest and their flocks belonged to God. These things were considered holy unto the Lord. And so Israel understood this set-asidedness, if we can coin that phrase, because God was himself set aside from them. God was transcendent. God was holy to the nth degree, such that the archangels who were around his throne constantly heralded his holiness by declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. In other words, God was far removed from sinful man because he was the definition of moral perfection and righteousness. So anything that was dedicated to serving God or intended to be used in the worship of God was considered to be set aside or holy for this singular purpose. The prophet Isaiah, when he was in worship and was given a glimpse of the Lord on his throne, high and lifted up, and he heard the voices of the seraphim praising God in his infinite holiness, Isaiah was immediately cognizant of his own wretchedness when seen in the light of God's holy character. And he realized that God would be perfectly just in obliterating him For he was a man of unclean lips, dwelling among a people of unclean lips. He had just heard praises from the lips of the seraphim, holy lips, offering holy praise to a gloriously holy God. And by comparison, Isaiah's lips, as well as all those of his countrymen, were horribly unclean, incapable of offering the kind of praise that God deserved. With these lips they had uttered profanities and curses and common speech that made them unfit to offer praise to God. And seeing the magnitude of God's holiness, Isaiah is keenly aware that he and his people have come nowhere close to understanding the truth of God's holy character. And so they've never even spoken truthfully about God, for they've been incapable of doing so. So lost and unclean are they. Their lips were only capable of revealing the true condition of their hearts 
which is why Isaiah begins to cry out, Woe is me. Well, what does God do? Well, one of the seraphim brings the purifying fire from the altar, touches that burning coal to Isaiah's lips, making them holy to serve God in the prophetic ministry to which he was then commissioned. Isaiah was set apart to serve God. And in a similar fashion, the church of Christ has been set apart for a great commission. At Pentecost, God's holy fire fell upon an entire body of believers, now empowered to go into all the world to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them, to obey all that Jesus has commanded. The church was made holy to carry out that commission. Now, two weeks ago, we spoke about the Holy Spirit permanently binding us to Christ such that whatever is true for Christ becomes true for us. This is how Paul is able to declare that we have died with Christ and how we've also been raised with Him. Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. His inheritance becomes our inheritance and so on. Therefore, we are holy in the sight of God because when God sees us, in a judicial sense, we stand fully justified in His sight. Christ's perfect righteousness has become our righteousness and there is no longer any debt that needs to be paid. It is finished. But it is also true that our redemption, while certain and inviolate, has not yet reached its full perfection, which will happen, will not happen, rather, until the Lord returns and we experience the resurrection of our bodies. And so in this time between the times, that is, between the time of Christ's ascension and the time of His second coming, God's Spirit is busily engaged in a holiness project in us. The Apostle Paul captures this so perfectly in his greeting to those in Corinth in his first letter when he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And the word sanctified that he uses there is a perfect passive participle. So he is saying that the church that gathers in Corinth has been sanctified in Christ Jesus because they are in Christ, they are sanctified, But we also know by reading the rest of that letter, the Corinthians are far from being perfected. But the same is true for every believer, is it not? Even the apostles. And so we see with great regularity that the letters that they write to the churches frequently admonish their readers to be cooperative with the Holy Spirit in his sanctifying work in them and in us. When Peter writes this letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion scattered across Asia Minor, he is primarily addressing displaced Jewish converts who have relocated because of persecution and who are now 
undergoing persecution once more. These are those whom God foreknew and called to Himself by means of the gospel proclaimed, set them apart for this holy service. And Peter says to them, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now Peter invokes the image of our adoption into God's family and that we are to be obedient children who honor their father, not only by what we say, but also by what we do. We have been saved by God's grace from our former life to a new life that walks in the Spirit. And so Peter urges his readers to give up everything connected with that former life that was driven by the passions of our flesh. Before, we would do whatever felt right to us. Now we are called to do what is righteous according to God the Father. That former life was unenlightened because it was lived in spiritual blindness. Now that we have been made to see, now that the veil has been lifted and we have been clued into what God is doing in the world through Christ, we are without excuse. We need to be walking according to the Holy Spirit of God. Or as Paul put it in Galatians 5 last week, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, undoubtedly, the command to be holy as God is holy is daunting. We have no trouble identifying with Isaiah's sense of deep despair when we consider the disparity between our personal holiness and that of the Father, Son, and Spirit. On the face of it, it is insurmountable. But before we throw in the towel and give up even trying, we need to realize that such a defeatist attitude stems from an ignorance on our part about the role that the Spirit plays in this sanctifying work. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now Paul is not saying that the Philippians are not yet redeemed and they still need to work at it in order to be saved. He is saying that since they have already been redeemed, there is more to come in terms of their sanctification. And notice this. The awe-filled fear and trembling that Isaiah experienced when he simply caught a glimpse of God on his throne will be present with them as well because that same God has chosen to take up residence in them and he's already at work in them, transforming their affections so that they will want to be more like Christ who lived obediently in all that he said and did. This is the call of Christ upon his church. We are to live in a way that is set apart from the world. Jesus prayed for us on the night of his arrest, and he said to the Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And I do not ask that you take them out of the world, 
but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So while we are in the world, we are not to be of the world. We're in, we are not to use the wisdom of this world, which is no wisdom at all. But we are to be wise according to the word of God. We are not to judge what is right by the standards of this world For those standards deny the Lordship of Christ. We are to do what is right in the sight of the Lord. It is this being sanctified in the truth that is the hallmark of the people of God. It is this separateness, this holiness that characterizes Christ's church as it operates in the world, all the while keeping its eyes fixed upon the author and finisher of our faith, even Jesus Christ. We are to recognize that this is not our home, but that we are resident aliens here because our true home is with the Lord. Some of you may know the name of Richard John Newhouse, a clergyman who founded an ecumenical journal called First Things back in March of 1990. The mission of that journal was to advance a religiously informed public philosophy for the ordering of society. Here's something that Newhouse wrote in his journal back in 1996 concerning the Church of Christ. A very long time ago, when Christians were a persecuted minority of maybe 50,000 in the great empire of Rome, An anonymous writer explained to a pagan named uh, Diognetus the way it is with this particular people. And this is what that anonymous author wrote. For Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a peculiar form of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. This doctrine of theirs has not been discovered by the ingenuity or deep thought of inquisitive men, nor do they put forward a merely human teaching as some people do. And yet, although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike as each man's lot has been cast, and follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and other matters of daily living, At the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. They marry like everyone else, and they beget children, but they do not cast out their offspring. They share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. It is true that they are in the flesh, 
but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. Now, while we do not know the author of that letter to Diognetus in the second century, it is evidence to us in the 21st century that the early church understood quite well this notion of being set apart from the world to be a holy priesthood that proclaims to the world the truth about God's salvation through Jesus Christ. So how does one go about pursuing this holiness that the Scriptures call us to? Edmund Clowney says that the Puritans sought holiness through a diligent use of the outward means of grace, the Word, the sacraments, and prayer. That is to say that through the regular participation with the body of Christ, where the Word of Christ is proclaimed with gospel clarity, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly observed, and through private and corporate prayer we will discover the Spirit at work in us conforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ. Now, in case you think poorly of the Puritans, this Puritan approach sounds remarkably similar to the early church, which Luke tells us in Acts devoted itself to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all of that is to say that if we are to grow in holiness, we need one another. Clowney says the gifts of others encourage us when we despair, minister to us in sickness, remind us of the faithful promises of God. They also warn and rebuke us, even declaring God's condemnation of our sin. Discipline is essential to the pursuit of holiness. God Himself chastises us as children, and He uses fellow Christians to hold us responsible to our common master. Friends, if we desire to grow in holiness, we need the body of Christ. And we are deceiving ourselves if we cut ourselves off from the regular fellowship of the saints and believe we're doing just fine. We need the regular reminder of what Peter declares beginning in verse 17 when he says, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You see, our conduct should always be performed with the cross of Christ at the forefront of our thinking. Who of us can gaze upon the crucified Christ and make excuses for our sin? Who of us could engage in wicked behavior in the shadow of the cross? Peter is reminding us that no greater price could have been paid for our salvation than was paid. We were under bondage to an enemy so sinister that everything we attempted to do to free ourselves was an exercise in futility. It was not until Christ came that we were set free and we discovered the truth of Jesus' words, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
So, beloved, let us pursue the holiness of God by surrendering ourselves more fully to the sanctifying work of the Spirit who dwells within. Let us pursue the holiness of God by a regular diet that feeds upon God's Word and drinks from the fountain of prayer. Let us not disparage the bride of Christ and focus upon her blemishes, but let us recognize our need for this communing fellowship in our own spiritual formation. And may the Spirit who dwells within us continue to change the affections of our hearts that day by day we grow in love for our Lord Jesus and for his church. And all God's people said, Amen. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me in prayer.